Well, we're making our way through Exodus, and we've come to this section where we are looking at the tabernacle and a lot of the details associated with the, that, that construction. So we're Exodus 29, uh, we get down to chapter 32, and there's a, just an image there that kind of gives you the tabernacle layout. We'll look at this uh, at least one, one other time. And, um, of course, the outer walls is the, the kind of the courtyard you have in the middle See the smoke rising, that's where the placement of the altar would have been. And then you have a bronze laver right before the holy place. And then the most holy place inside of that, um, at the back of that tent, would have been that where the Ark of the Covenant was. So we've been talking about um, the construction of these things, what they were supposed to look like. And as we did last week, we kind of did a summary form of a lot of this. And again, I'm going to take that same approach of summarizing these sections trying to get it down to some enough information from the text so that you got the details and maybe an application to our life. So we begin in chapter 29, verse 1, and all the way down to verse 37, where we see the sanctification of the priest and the altar of sacrifice. So the altar of sacrifice is not to be confused with the altar of incense. So one is going to be deep inside uh, the, ta- the, the, the tent um, right before the veil, and that's where incense was placed. The other one is where the animals and the grain and the drink, that's the one outside. But um, he's given them the description. The priests have all their clothes kind of laid out for them in the previous chapters, but they need to be sanctified. They need to be set apart. And so we begin reading at verse 1, and this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. And so that's the point. They're going to be set apart. They're going to be hallowed. They're going to be uh, the Lord's men to represent him to the nation of Israel. And he tells them to take the bull and two rams, um, unleavened bread. Um, They're going to bring this to the tabernacle of meeting. They're going to sacrifice the animals. Verse 5, they are to take the garments and they're to, uh, Aaron and his sons are to get dressed and to be... uh, Wearing this as they do ministry and as they do service. So they're set apart. Verse 4, they're to be washed. Verse 5, they're to wear the specific clothes. Verse 7, there's an anointing um, that is to be taking place. Um, And he says, verse 7 says, And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. And uh, so this is all part of the process of having them be set apart. But they had to bring offerings for themselves and they had to bring offerings of consecration for the actual items that were going to be used, like the altar. Um, And they had to be prepared um, for service in in the Lord's uh, temple, which is very different than how Jesus was. Because Jesus didn't need any of this, did he? When Jesus came, although he was a high priest, he did not have to have an offering made for him, as did the sons of Aaron. Um, he didn't have to bring the, two, uh, the bull and the two rams. In Hebrews 7:26 and 7, it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So they are having to make atonement for themselves, 
But our high priest, Jesus, did not have to do that. He did not have to make atonement for himself because he was sinless. He was the Son of God. On Wednesday nights, we are going through a doctrine series. And a couple of weeks ago, we um, did the doctrine of Christ. And this is one of the major points of the doctrine of Christ, is that he is without sin. Aaron and his sons, we're going to see today, definitely not the case. Um, they had some pretty low moments in their existence. So you have this taking place in 35 through 37. The altar was to be cleansed and sanctified for ministry and service. It was to be holy. Not like morally holy, right? I mean, obviously it's an inanimate object, but it is to be set apart. It's to be say, this is different. And so what you would do at that altar would only be in worship of the Lord. It was holy to the Lord. You wouldn't use it for any other type of activity. In verses 38 through 46, um, we read that there also was to be a daily offering of two lambs along with um, some grain offerings they were to bring. Every morning, the day began with the lamb being offered up. Every day at the temple, at the tabernacle, the day ended with the lamb being offered up. This was, in verse 42, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. So that's, this is... That everything we've read so far, it's all about the consecration. In Israel, the image of a lamb being offered and sacrificed was, it was deeply ingrained in their thinking. Um, and Passover, there would be hundreds of thousands of lambs, depending on the size of the nation at that time, that would be offered and sacrificed every day of every week. A morning and evening sacrifice was made. They knew why. Um, even in that image that we showed of the uh, entering into the tabernacle, the first thing you saw when you walked through the door of the, taber- uh, the outer court and you came into the uh, court where the altar was, the first thing you saw was sacrifice. You saw the altar. Something was dying every single day, all day long in that place. And so they knew that this was a covering for their sin. It's quite powerful. In verse, uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, when Jesus was seen by John the Baptist, um, his cousin, he says, Behold. So in other words, look at this guy right here. I want to tell you something about him. He's a lamb of God, and he takes away the sin of the world. That statement would have immediately resonated with these worshipers that knew that every day began and ended with the lamb being offered up. And throughout that day, there were many lambs that were being brought by individual worshipers for other purposes. They would have been reminded of the Passover when they would slaughter that animal and they would share a meal with it. It was a well-known image, the lamb of God. And he says, this lamb takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is that lamb. They had to offer two lambs every day. But the Lord was offered up once for all. And he is the fulfillment of that picture. In verse 45 and 46, still here in chapter 29, 
It says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So all of this worship was meant to reinforce to them who their Lord was. But before uh, much time elapses, we'll read it today, they're going to be worshiping a calf that they named Yahweh, a, a, a golden image. And they're saying, that's our God. And so the, the need for them to know was going to be so important. And it's in this worship that they would do at the temple that their hearts would be continually refocused upon the Lord and who he is and all that he did. As you move on through uh, into chapter 30, a few other items that take place. You have the altar of incense. That is going, the instructions are going to be given of how it should be made, um, what its width and height and length and all that kind of stuff is. Um, also, this would have been one that would have had coals in it, and this is where the incense would be put on, on top of it. So every time the incense was placed there, it would create this sweet aroma inside the tabernacle of meeting. Uh, that would be that inner kind of chamber where the, uh, the priest would go and tend to the lampstand. They would take care of the table of showbread, and then there was this. Those were the, the three items that would have been inside to which the priest had to take care of. And uh, so let's just read at verse 6. It says, You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will, eat, will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. He shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamp at lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it or burn a uh, burn offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. So if this was not like what was going to happen on the altar outside, which was much larger and the animals would go and be sacrificed. No, this was... Um, Again, coals where they would they'd have this incense. It was called a sweet incense. And we're going to read later um, that the anointing oil that was going to be you know, anointing the, each of these items and this incense was to be made with very specific ingredients and it was never, ever to be made at home. You were never to say, you know, I just love it every time I'm at the worship. You know, worship at the tabernacle and that, that sweet smelling aroma that comes out of the tabernacle of meeting. I just, I just want that in our house. No, you can't do that. But, you know, you would have um, been able to pick up that, 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 you know, wonderful aroma as you came. Now, there would have been a few aromas that you had going on. You had animals being slaughtered, for one. But then they would have been placed on the altar of sacrifice. And on the altar, altar of sacrifice, you would have had... Um, animals being consumed on fire, so it would have smelled like a barbecue. Um, but you also would have had this incense that was burning. And so you would have had that going on as well. And if you would have been walking behind a priest that had finished his day's duty, and let's say he had been working inside the holy place, and you're walking behind him, his hair, his clothes would have had that fragrance because it always was burning. It was always burning. There wasn't a time when it wasn't burning, especially when the temple was made and they weren't setting up the, uh, the, the meeting place and tearing it down. And in the same way, there should be that fragrance of our life where we're meeting with the Lord. See, the thing is with the priest is 
um, you would know that he had been there with the Lord. You would have got accustomed to that. And if you were somebody who wasn't, you say, man, it smells great. Where can I buy some of that incense? Oh, you can't. This is only used in worship of the Lord. And when we spend time with the Lord, when we're in prayer and we're in the word and we're communing with the Lord, I don't mean haphazardly, quickly rushing through a quiet time to, you know, kind of silence our convicting conscience. I'm talking about when you actually meet with the Lord and you commune with him in those beautiful moments of your day. You know, when that happens, there, there's, the Lord takes this compound of joy and peace and hope and assurance of salvation, and he mixes that together, and our lives take on the fragrance of Christ, as Paul speaks of. Now, when we don't do that, that's probably when people say, your attitude stinks, right? I mean, it's a different aroma going on there. But when, when you're not meeting with the Lord, it's, it's evident in your life. But when people encounter us after meeting with the Lord, they should know that we have been in the presence of the Lord. It's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful picture that is being painted for us there. In Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, David often was unable to go to the temple because he was on the run from you know, whether King Saul or even Absalom. And he says, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifices. Both of those things that he refers to are things we just talked about. The altar of incense. And he likens that to prayers that are being offered up. And then he talks about the evening sacrifice. That's that second daily sacrifice of a lamb at the evening time. Again, he can't be there. So what he is likening um, his worship to, apart from there, is like, Lord, when I lift my hands, may, may this be a, an acceptable sacrifice. I often think of Psalm 141 um, when we're together um, praying, when we're here worshiping the Lord and hands are being lifted and requests are being made. It's like, oh, this place is being filled with the, that wonderful incense of the Lord. This, the, our hands are like the evening sacrifice. The Lord is finding pleasure in this. And I, I don't know, maybe this will be a verse for you to remember as well as we come into the house of the Lord and we worship um, him. So every morning, every evening, um, this is going on. This is what's taking place. Now, in chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, they were to take a census. And every male um, that was over the age of 20 that was counted in the census needed to be redeemed or ransomed with um, a half shekel of the sanctuary. So a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And this is how they would, they would redeem themselves. So um, they're paying with silver and gold. But what does Peter say in 1 Peter 1, 18, 19? Um, you know, we've not been redeemed with silver and gold, but we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? We've been redeemed by his sacrifice. And so... When we look at this, and what I'm trying to do is go through there, is, that, is, is to give you enough information. You come back and you can ponder this. Jesus said, Behold, um, it is written of me in the volume of the book I have come. And so it, it doesn't matter where you look. You can quickly come upon a picture, a, a prefiguration of Jesus Christ's work in ministry. And when you're talking about the tabernacle and what's going on in the sacrifices, it's all over. 
And even in the being ransomed, you've been ransomed, not, not with a half shekel. You've been ransomed with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is how valuable you are to the Lord. And some may say, well, why does the Lord need this money? Well, we read that, um, verse 16, And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. So this was just going to keep things running. This was going to keep allowing them to uh, do this. Remember when David took a census? He doesn't do this. He doesn't pay the half shekel. And um, the Lord breaks out in the nation um, with a, a great plague. So... Um, this comes into play later on in his life. Now, in verses 17 through 21, we get another piece of uh, uh, the worship uh, structures that were a part of that tabernacle. And in that image uh, overview of the, the tabernacle of meeting, well, there's a bronze basin right there. And then that would be the one that is the closest to the inner tent um, or the tent. So they would wash there, coming back. Uh, to the right, you would have the altar um, that we just read about and how that was um, uh, consecrated and set apart. So let's read at verse 18. It says, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and feet lest they die, and it shall be a statute forever to them throughout their generations. So they had this water that was a significant feature of the tabernacle. Now, when you get into the temple construction, this is a... Uh, they're going to have uh, this water that's on the back of four um, you know, uh, bronze oxen. They're not real ones, but they're just bronze ones. And this thing is like a swimming pool. I mean, it is massive amounts of water. But you can understand this as they're, as they're sacrificing animals. There is a ton of cleanup that needs to take place. As well as every time they got ready to minister, they had to wash themselves. The Lord wanted them to be free of any filth of the world. He didn't want them to come walking in from outside and bringing something in from the outside. They needed to wash their hands. They needed to be clean before the Lord. Again, this water speaks to us of how the Lord wants to wash us. In Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Paul picks up that imagery of water, gives us another kind of illustration of the relationship of the Lord with his church is like the relationship between a groom and his bride. And here he talks about how the Lord wants to cleanse us and wants us to be washed and not have any filth of the church, no wrinkle, any such thing. And I just encourage you to kind of just play through your mind the wedding ceremony of our day and how when that, you know, that gown is picked out, in most instances, that gown is picked out with great care and everything that's going to go with it. Um, I was with my daughters when they were picking that out. Um, 
I paid for it while they picked it out and paid for it and paid for it. But um, I was glad to be there on that day and watch them pick that out. And, you know, it's the shoes and it's this and it's that. And, you know, it's so much fun to watch them choose this. And then on their wedding day and all the care that went into this. And, you know, it can't be wrinkled and we got to transport it. And, you know, they don't put it on until the last minute, right? Because you don't want anything uh, to get on that. And, um, but just imagine yourself now, a bride all dressed up. You decide to go through a, a quick run through Taco Bell. And as you're going through, you look inside and you see a bride all dressed out, grabbing that burrito, <laughs> no wrapper, and just beginning to eat. And just watching that thing explode on her. You don't know her, but you would be rebuking her for the rest of your life. What is that girl thinking? Why would she do that? I mean, eat beforehand. I mean, and, I mean, don't go into, you know, Taco Bell. I mean, well, why would you do that? We would have, there would be no real good excuse for, in anybody's mind for why she would have done that. And yet, the Lord wants us to be like that. Without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. Beautifully decked out. Through holy living. And this is what the Lord is trying to do is to wash us. And we read that he does wash us. And so think about your walk with the Lord. Do you put the same care in keeping those garments of righteousness that he has given to you in salvation clean and free of spot from the world as a bride would? Set apart, not going to allow anything to come. And so if not, then, then why are you risking such contamination with this world. The Lord is worthy of a bride that is clean and without spot, without blemish. He deserves that. And this is what he is, the work that he has done for us. As we continue on, we come to, in verses 22 down to through 38, we come to um, two sections. The first one has verses 22 through 33 where they're instructed about the anointing oil and um, how they were to use it and how it was only to be used for um, anointing um, these different utensils. You see in verse 27, uh, the table and all its utensils and the lampstand, the utensils and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering. All of these things were to be anointed with this. But look at verse 32. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it. According to its composition, it's holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. There, this, this aroma, this oil, was only for the worship of the Lord. And then in verses 34 through 38, the same thing is said about the incense that was going to be compounded and placed and burnt on the altar of incense. Nobody was to do it. You're not to make it for yourself, not to take it home. The Lord is trying to say, listen, I have a way in which I want you to come. And I want there to be a certain uh, order. And I want there to be a certain aroma. And I don't want you to ever take that which is holy and mix it with that which is common. Not even sinful. Just that which is common. I want it to be set apart in this manner. Now you think about this, the anointing and the sanctification of the altar and the utensils and the incense altar and all, the, the priest and all everything's anointed. Everything is set apart. 
Everything is consecrated. The way that he dresses, it's consecration. And yet today, where is that consecration? Where do we find the parallel in, in the church today? Is it, you know, the pulpit? I mean, what is it? No, it's you. It's me. We are the, the dwelling place of God, right? We are the temple of the Lord. We are that consecrated, holy gathering. You are a vessel of the Lord in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. You are consecrated. And we can begin to think about the gifts that he's given to us and how we are to consecrate ourselves unto him in service and ministry of him. We become that which is consecrated unto the Lord. Set apart. Meaning I don't get to go and just do whatever I want to do. I must follow the Lord and his plan for my life. In Luke 16, verse 15, in the second half of this verse, it says, For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There are things that are secular, that are worldly, that are common, and there are those things that are holy. And often people want to take that which is common, that which is of the world, and they want to bring it and deploy it in the service and the ministry of the Lord. And I think we must be so careful that where the Lord has specified for us to use his wisdom, his truth, his ways, that we do not set it aside. And it might be an idea, an ism, a philosophy that's out in the world that's widely accepted. But listen, if you're trying to address the issues of a person's life and their soul and their spirit, we must be so careful we don't take what men may esteem and use it to try and make men whole. Because those things are not going to do it. There's only one thing that can make man whole, and that is Jesus Christ. We are complete in him and in nothing else. So we have this going on, and the, those oils and that compound... That was the Lord's plan. And the Lord has told us, you know, he wants us to minister with his gifts. He wants us to preach the gospel. He wants us to preach his word. He wants us to use the, the gifts of the spirit that he's given to us. These are the things that God highly esteems. Oh, the world, they don't think much of them. They don't think much of, at all of those things. But this is holy. These are the things that God has said we should use to build his kingdom. Well, um, as we, we move on into chapter 31, we see that there's a, two men that are named in particular. Uh, Bezalel in verse 2 of chapter 31, and then also uh, Aholiab in verse 6. And what we read there is that they were going to be filled with the Spirit of God. They were going to have wisdom, understanding, knowledge, in all manner of workmanship and design. So God has given him a plan. I want you to make a woven tapestry, and I want there to be cherubim in this. Okay, what's the cherubim going to look like? Do you get, you know, 100 artists to submit their best drawing of a cherubim, and then everybody votes? And figure, No. God says, I am going to put my spirit upon these men, and they're going to know how to make things. They're going to know how to design things. They're going to know how to compound these uh, fragrances and this anointing oil in the sense that they're going to know because I am going to put my spirit upon them and they will be able to uh, be a part of the construction team that would have the plan. They would have the blueprint, uh, blueprints. 
In a similar fashion, if we think about this in our own life, uh, we use the word edification a lot. But what is the word edification? Because we, t- we use it so often, we, we probably only think of that, that word used in the sense of me coming along and encouraging a brother or sister in the Lord. But it's a construction term. Edification is a construction term. And the Lord says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And then he employs us to go and edify one another. Build each other up, we will say. And he gives us his spirit. And he gives us wisdom and understanding and knowledge. He gives us gifts of the spirit. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Read Romans chapter 12. Ephesians chapter 4. Where all of those gifts of the spirit are talked about. And how each one of us has been given a gift for the profit of all. We all have, a been, give, have been given a spiritual gift. Could you imagine if we're reading here and, you know, Bezalel says, forget it. I'm not interested. I'm too busy. You're too busy. You're, you're too busy to be one of the people that's going to be used, the Lord wants to use to actually construct this tabernacle of meeting. Yeah, I've got a lot of things going on. You know, it's busy out here in the wilderness. You know, I've, I don't know what he's doing, but he's, you know, make it up. Yeah, we would think, how strange. And yet, here we are, purchased with the blood of Christ, not our own, and we're to seek first the kingdom of God, and we don't have time to use our spiritual gift. How, how can that be? Now listen, I, I know I exhort on this a lot. And um, I'm going to continue to because you are going to have a day where you meet face to face with Jesus. And you're going to give an account. Not, if you're a believer, you're not going to give an account for your soul. Will you get into heaven or not? That's not the issue. That's settled elsewhere. But you'll give an account of what you've done in this body for the Lord and the spiritual gifts he's given to you. Now, if your thing is, well, I'm sorry, Troy. I mean, whatever. I mean, you can do that. I just don't have time for that. Listen, I will stand before the Lord by myself. I will be responsible for whether or not I exhorted you to get to work and to do the work that God's called you to do. But you're going to give an account to Jesus. To King Jesus, who will still be bearing the marks of your redemption on his glorified body, you will have to say why you did not engage in service and ministry to him. Well, I, you know, I had a busy career. Okay. Does you think that's going to feel good in your mouth when you're looking at him? Well, I had a family. You mean the family I gave you? I was busy at work. You mean the, with the skills I gave you? You have to seek the face of the Lord. Don't ask me how much time you should put in. I don't know. I don't have dominion over your faith, okay? I just know this principle, and that is you need to serve the Lord. And you need to be busy in that work constantly. Constantly putting your hands to that plow. Just as these two men had a special place to be entrusted with the entire construction, Jesus trusts you with spiritual gifts to work on and to construct, edify, build up one another. And don't you think that that brother over there and that sister over there is far more important than a curtain? Absolutely is more important than a curtain. And so the Lord wants you to be involved in serving. And I encourage you, don't hold back. I'm not saying burn out. I'm just saying don't rust out, okay? Do what the Lord has called you to do. 
Well, at the end of chapter 31, um, again, the Sabbath rest comes up. And I think the reason, although I don't see it in the text here, it seems reasonable. They say, like, everybody who's going to be working and building this temple, I still want you to be resting too. You still take that day. Maybe that's not the reason. Maybe it's just to emphasize it over and over again. Well, into chapter 32, which is where we see them lose patience in worship and begin to worship a golden calf. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and turn with me there. I don't have the for you to, to look on the screen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want to pick up reading at verse 1. And I want you to see um, that what we're reading right here actually is written for our learning and instruction. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to begin reading at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And so everybody over the age of 20 died before entering the promised land, we're going to read. Now, these things came, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so Paul's thinking about the scene we're about to start reading here. But what he says is, chapter 32, that was written for you. That was written for me. That we could be able to read this and learn from their error, and learn from their mistake, and not fall into lust, and begin to go off into idolatry the way they did. So in chapter 32, um, we begin reading at verse 1. Israel worships the golden calf, and then in verses 1 through 10, we see that Israel's impatience leads to idolatry. Could you ever imagine that something like that would ever happen? That somebody would become impatient and say, all right, I think I'm going to worship an idol. Let's read verse 1. Now that when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said, Great idea. Break off the gold earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So they broke them off, all the gold earrings which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar. So now he's going all the way in. It's like, okay, you got your image. Now let me build for you an altar. And, oh, tomorrow's a feast to the Lord, verse 5. And so they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down for your people. That's your son, not my son. For your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt 
have corrupted themselves. How could they possibly turn? What we're told there in verse 1, about six or seven words in there, delayed. The delay is what got them. And then they say, this man Moses, we don't see him anymore, which tells you a little bit about how immature and how shallow their faith was. Granted, it's at the beginning, but come on, you've seen ten plagues. You've seen the Red Sea crossing. You're eating manna every day. I mean, you have water that's actually currently flowing from the rock. You have all of these things, and yet the way in which you've identified yourself, apparently, with Yahweh is through the man Moses. Now, they were part of the day, the event that began with the Lord coming on the mountain, the thick cloud, the fire, it's shaking, and then some elders go up and they, they come into the throne room of God, we read, and they had a meal with the Lord. And then the next scene is um, Moses and Joshua are called up to a higher spot on the mountain, but only them. And they get tired of waiting for them to come down. So when we read that Moses delayed, I think you can also say, because the Lord delayed. The Lord had more to say. The Lord was still communicating. So their frustration with Moses was really with the Lord, who was not releasing him to come down. But they had too much of their faith connected in the person of Moses. So if we can't see him, who is that tangible representation of our God, then we want a golden calf. A golden calf? Why would you want a golden calf? Well, the bull was a symbol of military prowess among the, the Near Eastern um, societies, Mesopotamia, Syria, and Egypt. So they had just conquered, had a great military victory over Egypt, who is our God that did that? Well, his name's Yahweh. What's that? I don't know. All right? A bull. That's what we want. We want to worship a calf because that, in our mindset and in our culture, represents military victory and strength. And so they turn to that, which is a really odd choice because in the ten plagues that God poured out on, the children, on, the, on, on the, uh, Egypt, one of them was to... What? Attack the cattle. I mean, there was, there was impacts of the hail on them. There was sickness and disease that came to them. And God showed them, hey, I'm greater than your God, you know, that you worship this, this bull. And, and so they go to it. Now, what's interesting about this? After this scene, I mean, basically, the Lord's going to wash their mouth out with um, calf um, soap. Um, you'll see what I'm talking about in a moment. Um, you know... And then later on in history, like way later on, hundreds of years later, Solomon builds a temple, he dies. His son Rehoboam takes the throne. And they come to him and they say, hey, what kind of king are you going to be? Are you going to be, you know, kind of hard like your dad? Or are you going to ease up a bit now that the temple's built? He said, oh, I'm going to be way worse than my dad. And he said, really, we're out. So a guy by the name of Jeroboam comes back from Egypt, who had been in exile there, and he says, well, us and the ten tribes then are just going to break away. We're going to do our own thing. You can do what you want to do. But Jeroboam was afraid that the people would go down into Jerusalem and worship. So he made places of worship up in the north. And Bethel and Dan. If you go to Israel with this, you can look it up online too. There's a, the altar is still there where they, they worshipped. And it's called the sin of Jeroboam. And so he built this altar in these two locations where they could come and worship. And what do you think they worshipped? It was a golden calf. 
They again worshipped a calf. And it's just like they keep coming back to this. But the interesting thing is they didn't say, oh, this is not Yahweh. They said this calf image, that represents Yahweh. That's Yahweh. And so it was a mixing of religions. It was a mixing of ideas. The unholy with the holy. That which was revealed with that which was corrupted. And so they came up with their own brand. And the Lord says, these are a stiff-necked people. And he says at the end of verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. I'm done with these people, Moses. Let me just build you up. I'll wipe them out. Now listen. If God wanted to do that, he wouldn't have said, let me alone. I mean, could Moses really hold back God from what he wanted to do? See, I think what we're going to read here is that the Lord is showing this picture of intercession that Moses is going to make for the people in the same way that Jesus has made intercession for us. So Moses begins to intercede in verses 11 through 14 on behalf of the people. He pleads with the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So these are, these are, this is a challenging passage. How does the Lord relent? Isn't he immutable? That is, he changes not. So why would God be changing his mind here? Why would God be saying, you know, you know hold me back. I'm going to just smoke these people. It seems like he's just, kind of, he's just like a man, right? That's just out of control and mad. And so is that what it is? Anytime you come to a difficult passage and you don't understand it, you don't know what it means, another good way to begin to look at this is, what does this not mean? Well, it does not mean that God is unjust. It does not mean that God is sinning, because God cannot sin. We know that. We also know that God does not change his mind. So how do we deal with this idea of relenting? Again, I believe what we see here is, this is what God wanted Moses to do. He wanted him to intercede on their behalf, to have that picture of what the Lord would do for us. But there's a real big theological word it's called anthropomorphism. And um, anthropomorphism is it's taking human um, character and behavior and it's applying it to the Lord to try and understand a scene. So let me read to you. Another anthropomorphism by which God's activity is explained by analogy is strictly human terms. The meaning is not that God changed his mind, still less that he regretted something that he intended to do. It means, in biblical language, that he now embarked on a different course of action from that already suggested as a possibility, owing to some new factor which is usually mentioned in the context. So the idea is not that God is changing his mind, but we're, he's, we have human language being applied to him. Um, and Moses is learning about it. And Moses is going to be brought in as an intercessor. And that's what everything we've been reading about is all about anyway. So um, uh, 
we come to the conclusion, God does not destroy them. In verses 15 through 20, Moses destroys the, the, the calf and um, comes down, throws the tablets um, that were written with the finger of God, writing on both sides. This becomes symbolic that they've broken the covenant with worshiping this golden calf. And then um, as he gets down there, um, we read in verse 20, Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. It's like, really? That's what you want? I'm going to make you drink it. It was a way of humiliating them. It was a way of defiling their God and saying, some God you have, a puny little God, I've just turned him into a drink. And so it was a way for them to have this in their mind. But I think, likewise, it spoke of the guilt that they had, and they had to own it. It's kind of like, again, you know, take your medicine. It was this idea of being responsible for the sin that they had committed. Now, here comes the worst liar in the history of liars. You will not find a, somebody that could lie um, any more ineffectively than Aaron. So Aaron had his gifting. One of them was not to lie or deceive. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let your, the anger of my uh, Lord become hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. It's the woman you gave me. And that's what, you know. Adam said in the garden, lame excuse there too. Verse 23, for they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and whammo, a calf came out. Which... I can see Moses going, you're, you're just, I don't even know what to say. I'm just walking away. You want me to believe that a calf just popped out of the fire? I'm honest, honest, that's what happened. That's exactly the way it went down. And so what we find in Deuteronomy 9, 18 through 20 that, the, that Moses actually has to go and not only intercede for the people, but he has to intercede for Aaron because God's ready to wipe out Aaron as well because of what he's done. So, again, the worst liar in Scripture. It's just like, you really think that's the way it happened? You know, when we grow impatient with the Lord, how do we respond? When the delay happens that they felt, he, Moses should have been back here, what is your response? You've ever waited for something that took longer than you wanted? You've ever prayed for something and maybe you're in the midst of it and you haven't seen the fulfillment of it yet? You know, we need to be alerted. These things are written for our learning, our examples. That when delay and discouragement comes, often the suggestion to abandon the Lord is not far behind. I've been praying for this person or for this sickness or for that thing. I've been asking the Lord and it hasn't happened. And so I don't know. I just, I don't know if I want to even follow him anymore. We all have heard somebody say that before. And so we need to be content to dwell with the Lord in his timing and in his ways. If I could just take you back for a second to that altar of incense and the compound that was made. There were specific ingredients that were being put into that compound. And David likens that altar of incense to 
the prayers that he was crying out to the Lord for. So if I can spiritualize it just for a moment, one of those elements of the, that compound for us, it's our, it's our actual request. We request something, and that goes into that mixing bowl. But that's not all that goes into the mixing bowl. And I think we forget that sometimes because the Lord adds some other elements. One of the other elements that he, that he adds is his timing. And it goes into the mixing bowl as well. And then what goes into it is what he actually wants to do in our life and through our life. And then that goes into the mixing bowl. And he begins to stir it up. But as, as that's happening... We don't see the prayer being answered the way we want, or there's a delay. But it's all part of the compound. It's all part of the process. And people say, well, I just, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, you can, actually. You can. If you will just step back and say, my God is faithful. My God is true. Look, we ate manna today. We ate manna today. This is the ironic thing, is that our God is not with us. And yet, they had gathered manna that day. God's not with us, but there's a water flowing out of the rock that was struck so you didn't die of thirst. What do you mean he's not with you? And we lose sight of those things, of the presence of God in our life. And I would encourage you to allow the Lord to perform what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, with the request that you've brought before him. He's earned that. He deserves that. He is God, but he's also your redeemer. So the scene stays ugly. Um, and as we move on in verse 25, it says, Now when, the Moses, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. So there were some that just didn't stop as he came back. So the, Moses called out and said, All right, who's on my side? And the tribe of Levi stepped up. And said, hey, we are with you. Uh, verse 26, they gathered to him. And he says, all right, go out, get your sword. And whoever's engaged in this craziness, put him to death. And they went out. Verse 28, Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And so the Lord is serious about this. And so there's a call to consecration. Um, and then Moses intercedes for the people. In verses 30 through 35, and he says, listen, I, I pray for them. And if you're not going to forgive their sin, then blot out my name. Verse 32, blot out my name of your book which you have written, the book of life. We've, we know about the book of life. But you can see, you see Moses as this interceder. If you're not going to forgive them, then just, just take me away. My life for their life. And again, what a beautiful picture that is of Jesus who gave his life for us. And in Revelation 13, well, actually three different references in Revelation. 13.8, we read, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So now we come to know this as the Lamb's book of life. Those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God, their names are found written in the book of life. Those who are not are written in the books. We'll read about it in just a moment. Revelation 21, 27, speaking of the eternal state and who gets to go to heaven, says, but there shall be no means, by no means enter it anything that defiles, causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
So this book of life, although we just have a little bit of information there in Exodus, by the time you get to Genesis, we, we gain a lot of information. Get to Revelation, you get a lot of uh, information. And lastly, going back one chapter, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, what we read there is that God is now judging all of mankind that has ever lived. And as they come before him, the Lord has a book and he has multiple books. And if your name is found in the book of life, then you go on into eternity with the Lord and you get to experience everlasting life. And in that book, there are just names. But in the books we read there, we, we, again, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, you can read it on your own. We find that the names and the works of the people are there. And that those that are in that book, they are judged according to the works. You see, they have not come to Christ. They've not had their sins forgiven. And so they still have to give an account. They've not let Jesus pay for their sins, so now they have to pay for their sins. And every wrong thing they've ever done is in that book. And when they say, what have I done wrong? The Lord will be able to open. And he will be able to go line by line. Here are the works that bring condemnation to your life. But I love it in Colossians. And it says that there was a handwriting of requirement that was against us. That was taken and it was nailed to the cross. And that handwriting of requirement is no longer there. You can't find it. Once you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your name and all of your works are removed from the books and your name is found in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And it all has to do with what you do with Jesus. Are you going to stand before Jesus and say, I will let his work on the cross be my defense? Or are you going to try and justify yourself with your works? But you know what the standard is. The standard is if you're not going to come through Jesus, then you must perfectly keep all of the commandments of God. You can't do it. I can't do it. Only one man, Jesus, can do it. And if you will come to him, then his righteousness will be transferred to you and your name will be in the book of life. But you've got to make that choice. God's not going to drag you there. You must, of your own will, decide to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, you, and he's extending his hand. He is the initiator. He's drawing you to himself. And I pray that you'll come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're kind and gentle in all of your ways. And even, Lord, when we see um, what's gone on in, in times of rebellion, we see your great patience with the nation of Israel. And that you had mercy. and you, you sent an intercessor for them. You provided for them. And we want to just thank you so much that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the one to intercede for us. To be the one that took the, the guilt on his body for the works of our flesh. And we are grateful, Lord, to be forgiven. If you've never prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, then I encourage you right where you are right now is to call out upon the Lord and ask Him to forgive you. No, if you don't have your reservation, if you don't have your name in the book of life, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You will forever be separated from the Lord and the lake of fire which burns forever. And this is why God was willing to go to such great lengths to save us because the consequences are so terrible. 
that he sent his son to die in your place and my place. You've got to come to him, though. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've just grown disappointed with the Lord, he's delayed. He's done it differently than you've asked. You have things going on that you did not anticipate. I encourage you just to stand back and say, all right, Lord, you've got my request, but now I let you answer it the way you want to. And I allow you to answer it in the time that you want to answer it. Have faith in the Lord. Trust him.